Good morning. Now turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 48. Genesis 48. We read together from God's word. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed, and Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are mine. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Badan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They're my sons whom God has given to me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Jacob removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand, on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites and my sword and with my bow. This is God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. It is living and active. It is 
good for our hearts this morning. Let's ask God to bless not only the reading of it, but our hearing of it as it's expounded. Father, we thank you. So often in judgment, you give people over to their delights and their wants, and, and so often that is seen in no longer desiring and wanting to hear your word or read your word. So we thank you, God, that your grace has been shown to us this morning in the hearing of your living and active word. And Father, we pray that your grace would, would specifically apply your word now to our hearts and our lives, equipping us, strengthening us, nourishing us to be fed on it so that we might behold Christ by faith. Encourage us now. Lord, convict us of sin. But Father, we pray that your word would do its work in our lives, helping us to see by faith the beauty and glory of our Savior Jesus. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Well, verse 1 of this chapter provides the perfect intro. In God's perfect providence, it gives us what is one of the most timely words to begin our study with this morning. The chapter begins by telling us that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. This is, to my knowledge, the first reference to illness, sickness in the whole Bible. This is timely because, obviously, in the season of heightened illness, a pandemic of influenza, we see here how both Jacob and Joseph respond, not out of fear, but entirely in faith. Look, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. He, he brought his boys to his sick and dying father in order to be blessed by him. And, and I want you to notice here already how incredible this is. Joseph, who is, other than Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all of Egypt. Indeed, he's the most powerful man in the ancient Near East at this time. He's extravagantly wealthy. He's deeply established within the higher echelons of culture and influence. Here is a man who has it all and whose two sons will indeed also have it all. And yet he comes to this old dying man to find something of far more value. The covenant blessing through God's chosen man, Jacob. Joseph brings his sons to participate in something far more glorious than all the wealth of Egypt has to offer. He trusts that the promises God gave to Jacob nearly a century before are more solid and more to be sought after for his sons than all the, than all the social maneuvering and all the best education and wealth that Egypt has to offer. In essence, Joseph is saying here in this move in verse 1, it's him saying, I want my two boys to be more aligned with God's people and God's promises than with Egypt's people and whatever it is Egypt has to promise. Friends, that's, that's an incredible evidence of faith. Joseph, by identifying his sons with shepherds, remember, the kind of people Egyptians hated, certainly this move would shut his children off from any kind of Egyptian prominence. It's like turning down a, a, a fully paid scholarship to send your kids to Sidwell and Friends in D.C. 
in order to let your kids go learn from your pastor for like three days a week, right? All the hobnobbing and the influence and the, the open doors saying, no, I want my son to get a biblical worldview by just going to my pastor's house for a couple days a week. In a world where so much effort is exerted in getting our devotion, effort in getting the devotion of our children and our grandchildren, I, I think we see here an incredibly marvelous example of faith. But notice also Jacob in verse 2 and following. Jacob, well, Jacob in essence, adopts Joseph's two sons, and he makes them his own. More specifically, he adopts them not just as his own, but he adopts them into the covenant. And we need to see something really interesting going on here, and I, I think verse 5 really, really makes this explicit. In verse 5, Jacob says to Joseph, your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, they will be mine. Now, notice how he repeats Egypt twice in that verse. It's as if he's saying, your two boys are essentially Egyptian, Joseph. They were born to an Egyptian mother, have known nothing but the best of Egypt all their lives. But now, through the blessing I'm going to bestow on them, they will find their identity in the God of Israel and his promises. In other words, they may have been born in Egypt, but through this blessing they will be reborn, born again into Jacob, into Israel. Check this out. He adopts them in the place of Reuben and Simeon. And that's what he says in verse 5. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just like Reuben and Simeon are. Listen, next week when we look at chapter 49, we'll see that both Reuben and Simeon receive from Jacob a kind of anti-blessing. It's not quite a curse, but it's definitely not a full, real blessing. If you remember, these two firstborn sons of Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, they both forfeited their birthright blessing through heinous sin. You remember Reuben defiling his father's couch by sleeping with one of Jacob's mistresses? Simeon massacring an entire city of people through murderous revenge? They should have been the sons who received the best blessing from Jacob. But here, Jacob imputes their blessing to Joseph's two sons. It's a surprising switcheroo. Joseph's two sons now displace Reuben and Simeon. 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 through 2 explicitly makes this point when the author, writing 1 Chronicles, comments on Genesis 47, and, and he says this, quote, Even though the sons of Reuben were the firstborn of Israel, yet because of their sin, the birthright was given to the sons of Joseph. What an astonishing revelation. Twice in verse 5, Jacob claims Joseph's sons as his own. What about Joseph's other children, though? Joseph will have later kids. He's not done having two children. Jacob anticipates this in verse 6. All your future children, even they, shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. In other words, all of Joseph's children will be grafted into the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. This blessing that through these two sons, they will inherit part of the covenant promised land. Now, this becomes profoundly 
um, exponentially big later on when to say that you're from Israel, it will be a saying, oh, you're of Ephraim and Manasseh. The, 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 the number of their people will far outgross the, the population of, of Greenbelt, Berwyn Heights, and College Park combined. It, it, it's a massive tribe of people. And yet still, we've got to place ourselves in the situation here and now. Can you, can you imagine the conversation Joseph had with his two sons on their way up to see old Grandpa Jacob? You're going to see your grandfather Jacob today. He's ill. He's, he's dying. He wants to give you a gift before he dies. He wants to give you a blessing. You can imagine young Ephraim and Manasseh beginning to, to smile, maybe with a little bit of anticipation at the idea of a gift. Two boys who have wanted nothing their entire lives. Whatever they wanted, their dad or maybe Uncle Pharaoh would have gotten it for them. And so they start guessing. Oh, what's this gift? What's it going to be? What are you going to get? I'll bet you mine's better. But as they arrive and they look around and hear their grandfather, whom they're now meeting for the first time, Grandfather Jacob give them this blessing which consists of only words. Words about a distant land, something they've only heard bedtime stories about. You, you can almost see literal question marks pop up over their head. What? All they see is an old dying man with nothing to his name except that which Pharaoh had given to him 17 years earlier. What land, Grandpa? You don't own any land. This is all Pharaoh's land. Wait, but you were promised a country? Grandpa, where is that country? And why aren't you there now? You can see how absurd the moment might have looked at the time. Did Ephraim and Manasseh think this was nothing more than the rambling thoughts of a senile old man? I think the answer is no. The whole point here is that Jacob, in giving this blessing before he dies, is trusting himself entirely to the promises of God, no matter what the outward current situation looks like. This is Jacob's last great exercise of faith. Do you remember how Hebrews 11 begins its definition of faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Jacob hadn't seen the promised land in 17 years. Joseph hadn't seen it in over 50 years. Ephraim and Manasseh had never seen it at all. Yet there was an assuring hope, a firm conviction that what God had promised way back when, that was true. In fact, listen to what Hebrews 11, verse 21, says about Jacob here. Hebrews eleven twenty-one. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now, do you see how the New Testament author of Hebrews sees and leads this moment in Jacob's life? Now, this blessing is Jacob worshiping God. By faith, he says, by faith. He rests in what God had promised. And in faith, he looks forward to what will be. And through that, he blesses his grandsons as an act of worship. Joseph brings his sons to be blessed by his aged and blind father. 
Now, there's a clear emphasis in the text on seeing. Did you notice that? Five times in verses 8 through 11, we read the sense of seeing emerge in the text. But it, it, it's all used in an ironic way, right? Jacob, who's 147 years old, he can actually no longer see. So ironically, just like his father Isaac before him, who was blind, when Jacob, the younger son, stole the blessing from his older brother Esau. Remember that? Here, blind Jacob will also bless the younger Ephraim over the older Manasseh. But there's no, well, there is irony in the fact that though Jacob is blind, it becomes clear that in his blessing, he's still able to see in a prophetic way. So though Isaac didn't mean to bless Jacob so many years before, here Jacob blesses correctly. He can't see physically, but he sees in faith by trusting in God. He knows which son God is going to bless. After bringing his grandsons, now adopted as his firstborn sons close, he, he takes them off his knee in verse 12, and he bows his face to the earth. He prays. And then the, the shift, the focus turns to Jacob's hands. So if the focus in verses 8 through 11 is on Jacob's eyes, here the focus is clearly on his, his hands. Seven times in verses 12, 13, and 14, we see Jacob's hands repeated, signifying that what Jacob is doing with his hands is without mistake. It's, it's perfect. It's a perfect blessing. Though Joseph positioned his sons in a convenient way for old Jacob to, to, to bless the older first with, with, with Jacob's left hand, so I'm looking at you from your perspective, and then, and then the, the older son would go to Jacob's right hand, blind Jacob sees as God sees, and he switches his hands. Verse 14, Jacob placed his right hand, the hand of ultimate blessing, on the younger son Ephraim, and his left hand on the older son Manasseh. And Joseph is dumbfounded. Look at verse 17 and 18. No, father, not this way. In fact, he physically, he physically tries to switch back the hands of Jacob. That's got to be some kind of crossing the line there. This is not the way tradition would have it. It's always the older who gets the greater blessing. What are you doing, dad? But Jacob knew exactly what he was doing, didn't he? Verse 19. I know, my son. I know. Jacob was now at the end of his life unwilling to do anything other than what God was directing him to do. It's something we've seen time and time again throughout Genesis, that God's grace is never captive to what society or tradition sees as important. No, privilege or hereditary or cultural expectations, none of that matters before the God of sovereign grace. Like Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, God is not a tame God. He always does what he wants to do. And more often than not, God's sovereign wisdom undermines and confounds our human expectations at every turn. Think about what we've seen in Genesis so far. The younger brother Abel was chosen over Cain. Isaac was chosen over his older brother Esau. And now Ephraim is exalted over Manasseh. Why? It has nothing to do with the person 
and everything to do with God's grace. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 through 29, God chooses what is foolish in the world in order to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chooses what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? All so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's because of God's sovereign grace, says Paul, that you are in Christ Jesus. Look, this is, this is what makes the good news of the gospel so scandalously wonderful. Because it's never up to us and what we do or what we don't do that makes us right with God. That means that the most unexpected, the most despised, wicked sinners are still within the bounds of God's surprising grace. This, this kind of theology undercuts religiosity and legalism that, that makes us look down on people who don't act like we do. God gives grace and chooses the least likely, the worst of us. This is how the hand of God works. It's grace that's continually surprising. If you're not surprised by God's salvation of you, then it's very likely that you have not truly grasped how much in need of a savior you are. In other words, if you're not waking up every morning thinking, how is it possible that God has not punished me in eternal judgment for everything that I am in my rebelliousness, in my sinfulness, if that doesn't strike you every day, and you may not understand God's grace. You might not yet know God's grace. It's striking to me that the emphasis Moses puts here is on Jacob's hand. Here is Jacob's last great act of faith as he, he reaches his hands out, crossing them so that, that his right hand blesses the younger Ephraim and his, his left hand blesses the older Manasseh, it's almost as if Moses, the author, is asking us to look back at the life of Jacob and to consider again this patriarch, but this time through his hands. Jacob came into the world using his hands. Do you remember? As his twin older brother Esau was delivered first, it was Jacob's hand that the midwives noticed as Jacob grabbed at Esau's ankle. In fact, that, that's how he got his name Jacob. It meant to seize and, and to grab at. And it characterized the whole rest of his life. Always grabbing, always grasping, trying to take control and get ahead. He's always seizing at things which didn't belong to him. It was Jacob's hands, covered as they were in animal skins, which he used to trick blind Isaac and steal the blessing from Esau. Consider Jacob's hands as he wrestled the angel of the Lord, God himself, where on that fateful night, Jacob's hands clung to and grasped at God, refusing to let him go. I will not let you go until you bless me. There's so much rich history wrapped up in Jacob's hands. Indeed, when his beloved wife, Rachel, was dying after giving birth to their youngest, and she requested that Jacob name the boy Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. Jacob said, no. Instead, I will name the boy Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. 
can imagine all of our hands right now are a lot drier and, and rougher than usual as we find ourselves washing our hands like every 10 minutes. When you look at your own hands, what story do they tell you? What have your hands gone through? What have your hands held on to? Do your hands tell a story of clinging to Christ? Or when you look at your hands, do they tell a story of clinging to sin? What's in your hands more often than not in the privacy of your own room at night? Is it the comfort of the TV control? Is it constantly adoring the iPhone? Perhaps a bottle of some sort can always be found in your hands. Or are you likely to find the word of God in your hands? When you raise your hands, is it done more often in anger? Where your family's nervousness tells its own story about your hands? Or is it done in prayer and praise so that your children, when they think of your hands, their minds are drawn to heaven? In fighting sin, have you symbolically cut off your right hand as Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 5? Or does your hand, led by a wayward heart, wander often into sin? Friends, our, our hands are really just an extension of our hearts. What our hands do is only evidence of what kind of heart we have. And if you're here this morning and you're realizing as you look down at your hands that they tell a story of rebellion and pride, or that your hands are marked and scarred by sin more than they are by the indelible marks of grace. Friends, the answer is not to start doing new things with your hands. The answer is that you need a new heart. And yes, that is as hard to do as it sounds. It is literally impossible for you to get a new heart on your own. But what's impossible for man is never impossible for the God of sovereign grace. And if you find yourself convicted by sin, guilty over the kinds of things your hands have done, oh, dear friend, go to Jesus. Pray to him and ask him to give you a new heart, to give you new desires, new hands and a new life. With the hands of faith, cling to Jesus like Jacob so long ago clung to Jesus as he wrestled with him and refused to let him go until God had blessed him with a new heart. Do that today. Do it now, honestly. If there is ever a time to re be reminded that we have no idea what the future holds, that time is now. Go to Jesus and by faith hold on to him. Well, I want to end not by looking at Jacob's eyes, not looking at his hands, but by listening with our ears to Jacob's actual blessing. In verses 15 and 16, Jacob gives what is in my mind an absolutely stunning blessing, and we would be wise to listen to it. What does it mean to bless someone? We don't really have something equivalent in our day that we see going on here. The closest we come to is when someone sneezes and we say, bless you. But even that is an interesting connection, right? Where did that tradition come from? It's a carryover from the medieval world when the plague, known as the Black Death, 
ravaged the entire globe and killed an estimated 75 to 200 million people. So little girls back then would sing their songs, ring around the rosy, pocket full of posies, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. This was a, this was a game and a song children would sing about dying in the play. And when someone sneezed, you would say what? We would say, bless you. Because sneezing was a clear sign that you might have that plague and, and you were dying. And so people would say, bless you, because either the plague was seen maybe as God's judgment on you, or the person was asking in prayer that God would bless your soul in and through your dying. To say bless you was to ask that God would graciously deliver you that he might bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. We've perhaps lost sight in our modern era with all the comforts we have in modern medicine and, and hand sanitizers at the door when you walk in. We've, we've lost the significance of blessing. But to an older world, where God was still seen as the final arbiter of how life played out, we're where God was in control of whether or not there would be food for the family in the next year's crop, whether or not we enjoyed health or underwent sickness and death, it was the blessing of God that people sought after. To be blessed by God had real life implications, eternal implications. And I wonder if that older kind of understanding might not come back to us. Look at how Jacob understands blessing in these verses. It's clear that Jacob understands that he's, he's only the conduit through whom God is actually doing the blessing, right? Verse eight, uh, 15 starts by saying Jacob blessed, but we quickly see that it's God, the God before whom Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been Jacob's shepherd all his life, the God who had redeemed him from all evil, that God was now through Jacob blessing these boys. And isn't that beautiful? How he refers to God as his shepherd. It's striking because the Egyptians, again, they hated shepherds. And we have no reason to believe that Joseph's sons who grew up in and were educated in Egypt would have thought any different. But here Jacob identifies the God of all creation as the shepherd. The God who watches over his people. The God as shepherd who entangles himself in the lives of his sheep. He gets dirty when we get dirty. You know the mark of a good shepherd, right? Is that he smells like the sheep. That's our God. Not aloof. Not so utterly transcendent that he doesn't care. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every, every germ that falls on your hand. And as a good shepherd is sovereignly and wisely in control. You may have thought that David in Psalm 23 invented these words, but I think it's safe to say that David in writing Psalm 23 was really only quoting Jacob here. And get this, the blessing here begins in knowing who the true God is, knowing that God is a shepherd God. Even better, knowing that the Lord is my shepherd, as David says in Psalm 23. It's not just knowing about God, is it? No, it's knowing God personally, 
having God as your God and knowing that God as a shepherd has you in his hands and he cares for you because you are his sheep and he is your shepherd. We're not just doing theology studies here. We're knowing God. But perhaps the most significant part of Jacob's blessing comes in verse 16 when he calls God the angel who redeemed him from all evil. Who is this angel and how does Jacob know him as such? We've seen him already in Genesis when in chapter 22 he appeared to Abraham to stop him from sacrificing Isaac. Again, Genesis 24, the angel led Abraham's servant to find a faithful wife for Isaac. And of course, this is the same angel who appeared to Jacob and wrestled with him late into the evening, crippling Jacob into the blessing of humility and giving him his new name, Israel. Friends, the angel who often shows up as one who was sent by God and who speaks on behalf of God is also the angel of the Lord who identifies himself as God, just as Jacob sees him here. This is the one sent into the world on our behalf who took on human flesh and became a man so that in him we might find the true and final blessing of God. In other words, notice Jacob's blessing here. What we see in this blessing is that all blessings from God come only in and through the divine son whom we know as Jesus Christ. There is no blessing outside of Christ. There might be good circumstances. There might be gracious providences. But true blessing comes through Christ and Christ alone. And my prayer for us for those of us who know this shepherd, this Christ, that we would continually go after him and seek blessing in him. Or if we don't know him, that even now we might go to him and find the blessing of God that is eternal life in Christ. Let's pray. pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we thank you for this story of Joseph and Jacob and your people that you have called to know you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your providence and your sovereignty that we see repeated throughout the book of Genesis, Lord that you continually make promises to your people and you continually fulfill them. Even when we do not see the path, that we don't see the direction that you're taking us, Lord, you work out all things for our good and your glory, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we ask that you strengthen our faith this morning in the promises that you've given to us through Christ Jesus, and the blessings that you've given to your church, Lord, for your salvation, for your justification of us, Lord, for your adoption. Lord, for ultimately eternal life in Jesus Christ. And eternal life in your presence where we might worship you endlessly. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your forgiveness. Grace that we do not deserve. 
Lord, we sin against you, and apart from that grace, we would be left in the darkness and left in our sinfulness. Yet you love us even while we're enemies, Lord. Lord, we ask that you continue to turn us from our sinfulness, turn us to the things of the Lord, and sanctify us, Lord. Lord, we ask that you continue to turn us from the idolatry of safety and security in our own society and in our own culture, Lord, and turn us to yourself alone, to rely on you and you alone. You you alone, Lord, provide and protect us. You alone, Lord, redeem us. You, Lord God, are our shepherd and our redeemer. You alone, Lord, are our salvation. We praise you this morning for all these things, Lord. We praise you for everything you do for us, your word, the sermon that came from Pastor Unthink this morning. We praise you for bringing your truth here to Greenbelt Baptist this morning, Lord. We ask again that you continue to sanctify our hearts, turn us to you. And we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.